Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Fiction Predictions from Mashable. I'm Nikolai Nikolov. And I'm Sam Hasem. Welcome back, Sam. Happy to have you back. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me back. It feels like I've been away for a while. So where were you? <laughs> well, as you know full well, I was off getting married. Congratulations. Thank you, by the way. I listened to uh, I listened to the Handmaid's Tale episode and the introduction you did. And uh, yeah, I was almost quite touched that you gave me a little shout out. Yeah, congratulations to you and Keely. I'm very, very excited about it. Yeah, thank you. No, I, I am too. It's, it's. I keep telling everyone it's kind of surreal that you spend so much time planning it and then suddenly it's there and then suddenly it's, it's gone again. But yeah, I'm pleased to see that you kept the, the ship firmly afloat in my absence. It's almost like you don't need me at all. No, that's not true. <laughs> I definitely do need you. But that's why we saved the, the 1984 part two so that yes. you, you could be back. Yeah, I found the first part fascinating and I'm I'm really interested because I know the first part we were, I don't know, it was kind of a more general conversation about the book and some elements of hope, um, obviously based around the interview you did with Gene. And then this one is, uh, this one's focusing, drilling down into sort of specific examples, right? Yeah, this, this one is going to be exploring what aspects, if any, of 1984 actually... Um, maybe have come true in, in parts of the world today. If any, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, okay, I, I look forward to it. But before we continue, actually, I wanted to ask you this. When you think of Orwellian, how would you summarize that in, in very simple terms? What's the thing that comes to your mind? Control, I guess, is the first word that comes into my mind. Um, yeah, sort of Orwellian is that kind of... I guess word, like a few words jump into my head when I think of the word Orwellian, and that's kind of that like idea of oppression and control and that, that kind of thing, very irrevocably bound with technology specifically, hmm. I guess. What do you think? Well, it's, it's all of those things, and that's the problem, right? Because when we're doing a fiction prediction and something has such extensive hold over so many aspects of our world, it's important to clarify exactly what it means and where it applies best yes so sam as we're recording this episode the world is actually marking the 30th anniversary of the tiananmen square protests in china the noise of gunfire rose from all over the center of peking on june 4th 
there was a huge student protest that was brutally crushed when the Chinese government sent tanks and soldiers. After hours of shooting and facing a line of troops, the crowd is still here. They're shouting, stop the killing and down with the government. Tell the world, they said to us. The reason why I, I bring this anniversary up is because it's one of two important anniversaries as as we're getting ready for this episode. I mean, we mentioned in the first part of our exploration in 1984 that it's going to be the 70th anniversary of the publication of the book on yes. June the 7th. So today, probably, if you're listening, unless you're listening on the weekend, in which case it's already happened. Yeah, and, and the symbolism of the fact that it's only 40 years older than the Tiananmen Square massacre just puts things into perspective. And the reason why I brought up Tiananmen Square is that 30 years ago was supposed to be, you know, a time of incredible hope and, and, and progress with the end of the Cold War, with the fall of communism. You know, 30 years ago was the time when democracy was supposed to become... I think the people here in Western Germany live with the war since 1961 and... A worldwide phenomenon. I think now it's time to, to break the wall down, you know. And with Tiananmen Square, it seems to have been an ominous sign of where things are going. So the episode is split into three parts that look at the future, um, the present, and the past. And it focuses on the sort of the three giants in our world. That's China, America, and Russia. Okay. We start our journey with the future of the Aurelian nightmare as sort of represented or reflected in China, 30 years after the Communist Party consolidated their power and established full control. Liu Xiaobo filmed just before he was imprisoned in 2008 talking about police surveillance and watching his younger self in Tiananmen Square in 1989. And China is sort of a place where technology specifically is used to track and rate and compartmentalize people into clear boxes that the regime can see and control. It's a future headed towards authoritarianism or even totalitarianism, uh, just as Orwell seems to have predicted. If we stick really strictly to 1984, there's a whole bunch of ways that China looks very much like that world. Um, I interviewed Paul Mosier, who is a reporter covering technology in the region for the New York Times. You know, you have a ubiquitous uh, surveillance. Um, you have an extension via technology of surveillance into the sort of you know, the homes of people in different ways through the smartphone and so on. When I interviewed Paul, it was actually kind of funny. He was... Where um, I'm in the National... Next, next to the National Geographic Society in Washington, D.C. And uh, there, were, there were bells chiming in the background. They're tolling... It's tolling 13. Which is, you know, the oh. famous first line of 1984. Wow. That's spooky. Paul recently broke several stories that uncover China's attempts at enforcing a total surveillance state. So, you know, it's become a multi-year kind of deep dive into understanding the ways governments can leverage new technologies uh, to control populations. Yeah, this is why I was fascinated by the China section of this discussion, because to me, like without knowing as much as you do from doing your research, it feels very much like the most Orwellian uh, area, I suppose. I would say things aren't always what they seem. 
And so it's a less consistent and less sort of totalitarian, I guess, system at this point, mostly because, you know, the technology isn't fully there and, and they haven't spent the money to fully exert this control everywhere. Um, and so what you get is almost is more of a patchwork and more of an inconsistent thing. So it's, you know, it is Orwellian in all these senses of encroachment into people's lives and controls of trying to control how people think and the ability to express themselves and so on. But at the same time, it's very inconsistent and there's lots of places where the system falls down still. So it's not sort of wholly totalitarian yet. It's kind of in the process of becoming that. And one of the main reasons for that is the human factor. Totally. And, um, you know, we have this uh, joke on Twitter. Uh, we coined this term called Chabuduelian. And, and ch so Chabuduel in, in Chinese means like good enough. It's basically used ironically for something that's been done a little shoddily. Um, so we, you add Orwellian to that and you get Chabuduelian. And so it's like this sort of like half-assed approach to doing all of these things and, and the ways that it falls apart. And so, you know, you can give a police force some really powerful set of uh, surveillance cameras with AI but it could be that they don't use them because they don't know how to use them. It could be that they're too lazy to use them. It could be that they only set them up at random times of the day. Chabuduelian. Yeah, these, these ways in which, you know, getting humans to follow this kind of system and, and even, you know, perfecting the technology, it's just not there yet. Here's an example. We tend to think of power in China as centralized. Actually, it's not. In 1984, everything is very centralized. So there's one party and there's one outlook and there's, you know, one group of people who have a single kind of like heart and mind and they impose their will on the population. Um, and, and the difference in China is that everything is much more uh, fragmented still. Um, so, you know, instead of uh, a single you know, a single leader who's telling everybody what to do. You might have a local police chief who's powerful in your area. But if you go to another area, you know, it might be some other local party member who who's who's sort of, you know, the, the leader there. And so this notion seems to move away from Orwell and a little closer to Kafka. In the sense of somebody who's describing a sort of dystopian bureaucracy, a kind of unpredictability and a whimsicalness that, that relies on, you know, people Uh, leaders uh, acting in different ways and having different intentions that you don't fully understand or you have no ability to control. So you have increasingly effective and powerful technologies at the hands of local police officers and politicians. And some of the ways you, you see it starting to happen is, you know, one of the stories we wrote the other day is, is they have um, created these sort of databases of, of faces of people who petition the government, who complain, um, who are mentally ill um, and, and, and things like that. Um, and then they can set alarms on the cameras. And this is still an early technology, so it's not fully functional. But the, the goal is, is to set alarms on the cameras such that you can follow these people about. Um, and, you know, they're doing the same thing for ethnic minorities like the Uyghurs as well. A uh, largely Muslim minority in Kashgar, an ancient city in western China. So when you see that, you say, well, there's no transparency in who gets onto a list of the mentally ill or a list of a petitioner. And, you know, any local leader, uh, local police chief, if he has an enemy, he could just drop that person's face into the list. And they all of a sudden are on this sort of, you know, this other side of, of the society, uh, you know, dropping out and becoming something else. And there's no ability to petition to get off of it. There's no way to find out if you're even on it. But it's all a piece of the same thing, which is using this data and this technology to um, manipulate and control the population. And we start to see glimpses of what that total domination could look like. 
Kashgar is a place where the technology has been used as, as almost a blunt instrument to sort of bludgeon a, a group into submission. Um, you know, there's checkpoints every few hundred yards with facial recognition, you know, systems that, that take a picture of a person and you have to scan your ID and it, you know, it creates an entry of who that person is and, 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 and where they are. Um, you know, and then you have um, police walking around doing spot checks of people and then you have the camera systems. Um, so there's all these different things. Um, you even have these things that they look like toll booths in America on the roads outside of these cities. And as you come in, you have to stop and you have to get out and you go through what looks like an airport security system. And there too, they register your face, take your ID down, um, check you for you know any kind of contraband, and then you can go into the city. So it's almost a world of tech-backed checkpoints. And so in some ways, you know, it really does feel like a prison because there are so many police around and there are so many checkpoints and there are so many cameras that it is truly you know one of the most surveilled places on earth. So the big question, especially when it comes to Orwell, is whether China is different from past, shoddy, Chabudwellian authoritarian regimes. Like if the Soviet Union failed at this um, in all these ways, well, now China has all these new advantages, um, you know, in, in, in terms of artificial intelligence and a smart, you know, using the smartphones and using cameras. Um, and, and the question is, will, will they get to a point where the technology is so good that it overcomes those imperfections of the human system, the, you know, the, 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 the corruption of a single official or the individual impulses of a, of a random police officer? Will it overcome all of that? So, as it stands, human unpredictability makes the Chinese regime less Orwellian and irritatingly more Kafkaesque. But there is a clear trajectory in place in the regime's goal to use tech to control its population. I think that's the goal. And technology allows it to be extended in, in a way that, you know, for instance, um, you know, the Soviet Union was not able to just because it didn't have a way into people's personal lives. Um, so, you know, a good example of this is this um, study Xi Jinping strong country app. Right. And this is an app that just has a lot of President of China Xi Jinping's speeches and thoughts. Um, but if you're a party member, you have to spend several hours a day uh, reading it and looking at videos um, because and, and accumulating points on the app. And so not everywhere, but in parts of the country now, you know, the party is checking on what your score is on this app. And if it's not high enough, well, you need to do more reading. And so there's these ways that, you know, by having a smartphone in your pocket, they can extend control over what you consume and how you spend your time down to a very intimate level. Um, you know, and that goes for, for censorship as well, right? So if you want to have an opinion uh, on Twitter, you know, with Weibo on China, you can't have that opinion. Or if you do, maybe it'll get taken down or you'll be yelled at. And so there's ways in which that the, the technology allows them to project this on a whole on a whole new level, you know. So what did you think of that? Oh, yeah, that's as as fascinating as I thought it would be. Um, and what's interesting to note is you're right. Like I, the impression I perhaps had versus the picture Paul gave is different elements of it still felt very Orwellian to me in the sense that oh, just that like app study study uh, G that was fascinating like I, I think I'd read something about it before but I didn't know that much about it and this idea of like conveying uh, the message you want but then it's also a way of measuring how dedicated certain people are and it's also a panopticon in itself because in measuring them they're giving information about perhaps you know how much they believe themselves maybe or certainly they feel they feel like if they don't do certain things or engage with the app then they're going to be judged and oh that's terrifying what else stood out to me so this idea of facial recognition as well 
This feels like very Orwellian too. And again, it comes back to technology being used as a method to control and ostracize people. You know, you go in this system almost and you're identified as a, you've got a label over your head if you fall into a certain category. But in terms of 1984 and China and how closely they align, I guess the feeling I was left with was, it feels like you've got the technology heading a certain way. You've still got a lot of human human kind of interference at the moment but you know with the way technology is heading and expanding who knows where it's going to be in 10 20 years time um if it carries on that same path yeah i think i think that's 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 right i think the other the other big pillar when we talk about orwell is the importance that he places on truth and this brings me to part two of our of our episode, um, which is primarily about America and specifically about the relationship between the White House and Fox News. That information that was false and fake and never happened. And Fox and Friends in the Morning is the best show and it's the absolute most honest show. Now, not you, not you, your organization. Fox has treated me very nice wherever Fox is. Thank you. And I will say, Fox treated it great. They said it was great. You are fake news. So for this segment, I interviewed Media Matters for America's Matt Gertz. I'm the senior fellow here at Media Matters for America. Uh, I've been studying the conservative media and the media in the United States more broadly for about 12 years now. He's been studying how conservative media and the Trump White House have somewhat fused uh, over the last few years and i actually did two interviews with matt okay one a few weeks back sounds good and another one last night <laughs> yeah go figure so two weeks ago matt was adamant in our interview that orwell was a bit far-fetched really uh, if applied to america but since then matt found himself in a weird spot a tweet he wrote was retweeted with a quote from orwell and was briefly liked by the president Well, of course. I mean, so the quote from Orwell is uh, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. And here, I think it is probably where the parallels between Donald Trump and George Orwell are um, most interesting. It was Donald Trump's first like on his Twitter account in two years. It probably wasn't Trump himself who hit the like button. He's known to use Twitter solely as speakerphone. But nonetheless, Matt found himself in a bit of an Orwellian loop. It was very weird, because he doesn't like tweets. This is like the first one that he's done in two years or something like that. I mean, I assume it wasn't him. I assume it was Dan Scavino or someone. I don't know. There's no real way to know that. But yeah, I mean, what a weird one. So the quote first went viral on June 2nd, after CNN's Jake Tapper tweeted it. It has over 26,000 retweets. The reason that quote uh, was going viral uh, is because the president did an interview with uh, The Sun, one of uh, a big paper in the UK, uh, and uh, The Sun reporter asked him about uh, Meghan Markle and uh, asked about some of her past criticism of him. And the president responded by saying, I didn't know she was nasty. That's an exact quote. There's audio of it. There's transcript of it. But as other news outlets began noting that Trump had called Markle nasty, uh, Trump's campaign uh, started denying it. 
uh, even while uh, posting audio and transcript of him calling her nasty. All right, so let's all put our senses to the test. Here's the audio. Now, uh, Megan, who's now the Duchess of Sussex, Sussex right. uh, we've given her a different name, she can't make it because she's got maternity leave. Are you sorry not to see her because she wasn't so nice about you during the campaign? I don't know if you saw that. I don't. I didn't know that, no. Yeah. I didn't know that. No, I, I hope she's okay. Uh, I did not know that, no. She said she'd move to Canada if you got elected. Turned out she moved to Britain. Well, that would be good. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people moving here. So what can I say? No, I didn't know that she was nasty. Indeed. So let's try to deconstruct how we got to this stage in the first place. Matt says this wasn't always the case in America. You know, there was a time in the United States where... Uh, there were three broadcast networks and, uh, you know, a series of major newspapers all giving roughly the same account of uh, what was happening uh, in the world. In the 1950s, 1960s, uh, conservatives looked at that uh, and decided that uh, it wasn't really working for them. And, you know, over a period of time, they started setting up first magazines uh, and then Fox News, a a cable news network uh, that was basically designed to provide a conservative take on the news, you know, and that was, I think, a pretty big step in this process. Cue the glorious age of the internet, or what we thought was going to be a glorious age, but what actually turned out to be an age of conspiracy theory and flat earthers and anti-vaxxers and online hate. We now have... Uh, a system where you can get the facts that you want. You can get the uh, the type of news that you're interested in. Uh, you know that has some benefits. It certainly ex- life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Bans the realm of stories that are available, but it also makes it much harder to build consensus around uh, reality itself, around what the events are that are happening in the world. Uh, and of course, there are a series of actors that have uh, an interest in promoting uh, alternative facts. And when it comes to Donald Trump, it sometimes seems we're living in one of those infinite loop videos on YouTube. Trump lies about something. Uh, The Washington Post just reported that uh, the president had crossed his 10,000th lie in uh, the White House. Then shows like Fox and Friends, for example, try to sort of backtrack on the lie, 
like a cleanup operation. Times, you know, decades ago as well, they choose what they want the narrative to be, not what the news is. The news is big trip. Instead, we're talking about a, a princess who's never going to be the queen from America who may have made an online comment, and now... There is no story. This is a fabricated, ridiculous... Loop number one. And then the president himself, uh, on Sunday morning, right after Fox News uh, did a segment about this in which they attacked the media for pushing fake news, um, tweeted, I never called Meghan Markle nasty, made up by the fake news media, and they got caught cold. Loop number two. Matt was actually tweeting about all this, and it was that thread that was quote tweeted with the Orwell quote that we talked about earlier, and subsequently briefly liked by Trump's account. So this is one of these, those cases where the president is putting his supporters to the test. Are you going to believe me, President Trump, or are you going to believe what your senses tell you? What this all plays out is if someone is willing to believe uh, their leader over their senses, everything else more or less falls into place. Um, your first principle is believe what the leader is telling you, not what you can otherwise uh, see and hear. But despite the Orwellian references, remember 1984 topped the online bestseller list on Amazon in 2017, Matt says the American media is far away from that dystopian nightmare. I mean, I, I think that as a worst case scenario, uh, certainly 1984 is a good one. I think we're pretty far away right now. I think that that gets us to a place where, you know, we stop focusing on the real details of, of what's going on uh, and in favor of sort of uh, catastrophizing. Um, you know, I, obviously, I think what we're seeing is very frightening. Uh, if I didn't, you know, I wouldn't be doing my job uh, the way that I do it. But, you know, I think that there are some you know, differences here, you know, both in the monopolization of the news that you see in 1984 uh, and frankly, the way in which it serves as sort of um, a, a passive tool of the regime in 1984. I think that's true. And I even talked to Paul about how he feels whenever he goes back to the States and how it compares to the situation in China. I mean, even something like Fox News, I find myself having a, a kind of, you know, interesting outlook, which is like I come back to America and I'm just really happy to see opposing viewpoints. Um, you know, it's just great to see people being able to talk about things and have opinions and, 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 and push back and forth on, you know, on all kinds of issues, because it is a different level in China. I mean, I mean, the, the, what, you know, I, and I think it's easy for us to kind of say, oh, well, our system is so, you know, so darkly dystopian in this way and that. But like in China, it's an order of magnitude different. Like there is a real intentionality there. There is a real control there. Pundits have been arrested. Um, social media influencers have been thrown in jail. All of the money flows to state media. Um, and there's only one one filter bubble. You know what I mean? So like in a, in a place like America where there's multiple filter bubbles, to me, that's that's great. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it does feel very different um, in a way. Uh, and, and, I, and I feel like you just sort of come to appreciate that a lot more. So, yeah, I think you can feel a lot of these differences. That's why we need those comparisons between, you know, China and America is because things are able to change so quickly in such a short space of time. And what Orwell essentially shows in 1984 is that we need to be diligent in protecting those values because, you know, the road essentially to hell is, is, is it, it, it happens in a heartbeat. 
yeah, I guess it feels like from looking at these two examples, and my takeaway is, you know, Orwell painted one picture. China is a certain way down the road, arguably, towards something like that. And America, you know, is, you know, a completely different place on the road. But with things like truth starting to become muddied uh, and, you know, some elements of freedom of speech being attacked, perhaps that's the kind of path that those things push you down. Yeah. And, and another thing that I would say, and I think this is a good segue to part three, is this notion of, of a path dependency or more specifically progress is that when, when I was born and, you know, when you were born, um, we were brought up with this ideals that, you know, with the fall of communism and the fall of the Berlin Wall, the world will open up. Uh, countries that have never experienced these kinds of freedoms will, for, for the first time, enjoy them. And, you know, I'm an obvious example of, of all these freedoms, which is why I'm sitting here speaking to you in English in London. And there was there was always the sense of, of, of the infallible progress towards democracy. You know, that things are only going to go forward and things are only going to get better. And... I guess the first sort of like wake up call to that is, you know, the 2008 financial crisis and subsequently with Brexit and, and with the election of Trump, it's very clear that this notion of, of, of a path leading from point A to point B is utterly meaningless and useless. Yeah. And that's why I want to talk to you about Russia. And that's why I, I brought a, a very important, I guess, smart person to interview and his name is Peter Pomerantsev. My name's Peter Pomerantsev. I co-direct an initiative at the LSE that looks at, um, sort of inspects disinformation campaigns in Europe and beyond, uh, especially digital ones. And then we also work with media to think about how they can deal with some of the problems thrown up by, you know, fake news and polarization and, and other such issues that we see today. He's actually got a new book coming out later this year. It's called This Is Not Propaganda, which is very Magritte of him. I've ended up writing a lot about propaganda and disinformation in the 21st century, though that wasn't my initial specialist subject. It's just I lived in Russia a lot between 2001 and 2010. I lived there for nine years and I kind of saw this new propaganda model emerge and a lot of its qualities we've now seen sort of mushroom across the world, uh, not because Russia exported them, but because in a weird way, the future arrived first in Russia. The other thing is that while particularly the West was, was mocking the Soviet Union um, after it collapsed for being so backward and so incapable of looking internally and seeing the problems that inevitably led to its collapse, what Peter is able to show is that Actually, Russia in the 1990s, despite all this chaos, was actually much better at anticipating the 21st century, at anticipating the problems that we're, we're now all dealing with. Without a doubt, technology was meant to be the vehicle that took us forward, further towards a progress. But I wonder whether we really talked through that, what that progress is. And instead, it surfaced all these kind of, at times, almost medieval kind of uh, superstitions and phobias and waves of fear and craziness. So that's definitely been a paradox. We thought this was, you know, us heading into the future. And if anything, it's kind of destroyed the relationship with the future. And the thing that we can learn from Orwell and the thing that all three examples show here is that the path to progress is not guaranteed. It depends on, on us um, being vigilant and being mm. there to protect these really fragile um, pillars that, oh, that, yeah. that keep up on these, these democracies that, that enable us to even speak freely like this on the radio. 
I think one of the things that does resonate actually from Orwell, and not just from 1984, but just from a lot of his writing, is this sense that no, there is an empirical truth. And he's got he's quite adamant about this. So even if the actors have changed uh, and their means of the production of lies has changed, that feels very relevant, actually. And actually, that, I know that feels very contemporary. So I actually think that that bit of Orwell is actually still very, very useful. I just don't know how on earth we go around working with that because when it seems to sort of like, you know, mirror a desire that people have for avoiding facts, then um, how do we fight it? <laughs> you know? So I don't know, we're going to live in this world of black holes with absolutely no rules inside of them. Um, I mean, starting at the basics, sort of the propaganda, it's not meant to convince you. It's not meant to convince you that two plus two equals five. It's meant to confuse you to the extent that you give up ever trying to understand what two plus two means. And in that kind of murky world where there's too much information and you can't tell disinformation, information apart, you kind of need a strong hand to guide you. So it takes you to authoritarianism in a very different way. And Peter has this amazing quote. We're always fighting the, it's the classic thing, we're always fighting the dictatorships of yesterday. And I think that's very interesting because... Did he just come, come up with that off the cuff? He, I, I think so. Has he written that? Because that seems like... But it's, it's very relevant because whenever we think of Orwell, we think of something that's happened in the past, right? A book written 70 years ago and a book warning about the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany and these big isms of the 20th century. And yet it's so rare that we look, we're, we're forward facing or that we're a diagnostic, uh, that we look at some of the things that are going wrong now and where they could potentially lead. So this idea that facts are pointless, that, you know, this ultra cynicism, and just the sense that everything's changing, that everything's liquid, that nothing is stable, that words are unstable, that words are transforming their meaning all the time, is something that was very prevalent in Russia in the 90s and 2000s, and now is clearly playing out here. And first of all, I thought it was just me, because I kind of left Russia in 2010 because I got tired of that. And then to see these very similar things play out here, and then I asked some of my Russian friends, who a lot of whom came over here um, for the same reason that your parents wanted you to come to come to the West. Um, they were kind of all in shock. I was like, oh my God, it's caught up with us. But I do think that's systemic. I don't think that's accidental. So, you know, the Cold War helped fix our ideas of progress, of social aims um, very, very strongly, an idea of a sort of a future and evidence. And, you know, after victory in the Cold War, we kind of coasted on sort of on a sort of unthinking status quo bound up in the notion of freedom. And, you know, that collapses here much more gently than in the Soviet Union, but starts to come apart during the Iraq war. But 2008 is obviously the moment when a sort of a certain idea of where we're headed as a society just sort of hits the wall. Um, like it's more gradual here. Here it's more like, a, like an icebreaker coming apart than this kind of like cliff edge or an elevator dropping like you had. In, but, but it's kind of slow, yeah, it's a Titanic feeling. And then uh, the paradox there then is that Russia, Russian elites and some bits of Russian society and Russian propagandists are better attuned to the present than we are here. Simply because they've just been experimenting for it for 20 years longer than we have. But the sort of the ease with which you know, Russia's foreign propaganda has been able to sort of slit itself into different narratives. Just that suppleness. And that's come after for 20 years of not really believing in anything and being able to be very, very adaptable to survive. I mean, that's something that's kind of like, you know, taken taken the West a long time to get its head around. Like, you know, what does Putin stand for? And we still have all these books about Putin's ideology. Like, there is no ideology. This is the point. That is kind of the insurgent 
strategy these days, whether it's a Farage or a Putin. So they do. So I wouldn't dismiss them, um, though we have to be very careful not to play into their kind of, you know, various propaganda games. It's two plus two equals whatever you want it to be. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like it is like a version of two plus two equals five, but it's not it's not the same uh, method, is it? No. It's confusion rather than just you will say this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I've brought you these three examples of you know uh, a past authoritarian regime that's failed, and despite all expectations. It has resurfaced and has anticipated some of the most disbalancing forces that are affecting all democracies, I would say, in the world. But I've also shown you how something that we've always thought as a stable democracy that is the opposite of an Orwellian society, you know, America, how easy it is for, for individuals or for these processes to start chipping away at the veneer of what makes it this you know, the, the poster child, right, of, of democracy. It's, yeah, it's interesting. I like the way you structured this. I feel like it's, it's a little bit like a Christmas carol, isn't it? Like the ghost of Christmas, past, present. and Yeah, exactly. Unlike, and that's why China is the first one, right? I mean, it's obviously the first one because it's the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square. And I think that we, we couldn't have started this episode without China. But yeah, it's the most extensive experiment of, you know, of the technological domination and, and what that could lead to in a country that is so, um, it has such a large population. Mm, absolutely. Well, what do you think? So, I mean, we've, we've now reached the end of this episode and I guess you have to consider the first episode as well, but if, if we're going to give it a verdict. I mean, the first thing I'd say is thanks so much to all of the interviewees, like to Gene, Paul, Matt and Peter, because it was so fascinating to hear what they all had to say and their, and their areas of expertise. And, you know, thank you for interviewing them because it really, uh, yeah, it was a, a really fascinating journey for me uh, just to sort of listen to and to go from my kind of, you know, I, I read 1984 a long time ago. Um, and I've dipped back into passages. So it's really interesting to sift through that. And it is a lot of, it's a hell of a lot of information. I think that's what sets it aside from some of the other podcasts. Because, you know, before we've kind of perhaps analysed a few examples or... And it's, it's, yeah, it's a very it's very difficult to get to the bottom of it. Because it is confusing and there are so many real world examples. So, the question is... Well, the normal question we ask is, is it a good fiction prediction? An accurate. An accurate fiction prediction. That feels like feels like almost too <laughs> simplistic a question for something so complicated. Exa exactly, right? But that's why that's why I think it's really important that we did a two-part episode because with 1984, the answer to the question, is it an accurate fiction prediction, could easily be yes or no. You know, it could be, yes, um, way back when, you know, people like David Bowie or, you know, Stevie Wonder when they were writing, or John Lennon when they were writing songs and referencing Big Brother. Um, there were obvious comparisons to 94 back then that people were fearing. The rise of the surveillance state here in the UK, obviously a good comparison. The rise of, you know, our absolute addiction to mobile phones and the so-called screens is a good example. Uh, the, the negation of truth um, in various so-called stable democracies is a good example. So yes and no at the same time because we haven't reached that state of total domination on the other hand but to go deeper was really important to see the nuances um and and the the warning sign 
um, as Orwell imagined it. And and what happens when people don't listen to these to these um, to these words by someone who who lived through incredible tragedy, right? Who who saw with his own eyes what happens when human beings take things to the extreme? You know, the modern ideologues of fascism, Nazism, and communism, and all this absolute bullshit yeah it feels to me like a kind of nightmarish blueprint of where society can go and orwell is showing i guess like perhaps the end of of that imagined path and he's brought technology in to do that um and what those interviews suggested to me is that perhaps there are places in the world that are certain certain ways along that path that orwell was showing some more than others but as you said everything is very fragile it's not just linear you know it's not like oh we're all moving away from from this bad place or this bad picture of society we're all moving from a dystopia to a utopia well obviously it's not like that it's a lot more circular and messy and yeah i think ultimately orwell's vision was like a, a warning but also as we said in the first episode there is that kernel of of hope so I guess that's all for this episode. No more Orwell for the foreseeable future. Yes, but you never know when it's going to pop back up again. But uh, but no, thank you, Nick. That was it was a fascinating uh, journey you took us on there. Yes, thank you for uh, sitting through all of that. And thanks to Paul and Peter and Jean and Matt for joining us in these in these two episodes. Just rubbing it in again. How many interviewees you lined up? I know you. I know this is all just an effort to outdo me. It, everything is about you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> My ultimate goal yeah. is to just be the preferred host of this podcast. <laughs> Speaking of which, I have a surprise for you, Sam. Uh, next week is going to be a really interesting episode. It's going to be an interview with a sci-fi legend, living legend. Okay. I had the great opportunity to interview him last week, um, and it's about a new TV show that's currently playing on Amazon Prime and it's based on a book that he wrote with uh, Terry Pratchett okay, well, 30 I, I, years ago. I do know who you're talking about, but I'm very I'm very excited about this one. Um, yeah, it should be really, really fascinating. Uh, so yeah, no, I look, I look forward to, I look forward to listening to it. And thank you guys for listening as always. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, seriously, because, yeah, like, it, it means a lot to us, all the people that have tuned in. And we've also had some lovely people reach out to us on Twitter, haven't we? Yes, we have. Thanks, guys. With ideas. It's really, that is really cool, actually. That was really nice when people... We, that's how we did the Handmaid's Tale episode. No, that's what I mean. So it's nice that people people have started talking to us more. Yeah. So, yeah, please please do, if you have any ideas for fiction predictions, please do tweet them at us. I'm at Sam Hasem. What's your handle again? Nikolai underscore Nikolov. And the podcast's handle is predictions underscore pod. But yeah, thank you very much for tuning in. Thanks, guys. And congratulations, Sam, for getting married once again. Oh, thank you, Nick. You're a lucky man. (laughs) Thank you. Fiction Predictions is a mashable podcast created by Sam Hasem and Nikolai Nikolov. The theme song was composed by Kasberg. The artwork was designed by Bob Al Green. And this episode was edited by Nick. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.